The Leaning In Leadership Podcast is presented to you by Olivet Nazarene University and Shine.fm. This is a place to lean in to good leadership practices through conversations with great leaders. Lean in and listen close as your host, Dr. Carlos Lonberger, discusses a wide variety of leadership topics to encourage, equip, and empower your leadership. Welcome to this month's episode of the Leaning In Leadership Podcast. I am here today with Dr. John Bowling, University President for Olivet Nazarene University. And Dr. Bowling, it is a pleasure and an honor to have you here with us this month, sir. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Carlos. I'm glad to be here. It's a topic uh, that is of interest, I think, to all kinds of different people in lots of different venues. So uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation. For those of you who might not know all of the history for Dr. Bowling, he was elected president of Olivet in 1991. Seems like yesterday and then seems like three decades ago, too, I'm sure for you, doesn't it? It goes very quickly. (laughs) He is the author of seven books. We're going to talk about the seventh one a little bit later in the episode because it's brand new and I'm holding a copy of it here, Windows and Mirrors, and I'm really excited about this. I'm going to assume that I was the first person you gave a copy to. Oh, certainly. And and it's signed and everything, so I'm really excited about that. I don't want to see it on eBay. It will not be on eBay. It will be in my probably in some sort of shadow box on my shelf in my office. We just kind of want to talk today a little bit about what it's been like over your tenure as president of the university and kind of what longevity in leadership and that type of consistency really provides for an organization and for a leader and how that worked out for you. Just to kind of start off and kind of get us rolling, what is kind of the most important piece of that longevity and consistency? What's been the positive? How has that benefited you and your leadership at the university? Well, I do think leadership in the same venue over time is a particularly challenging endeavor. It's a little bit different. The dynamics are different than when a person first starts a leadership role. So I think one of the things to keep in mind is that leadership is dynamic. That is to say that it's constantly changing because leadership is not an entity that exists in a vacuum. It's shaped by changes going on in your own life, by the organization, by the broader culture. So uh, I think one has to constantly be renewing his or her understanding of leadership and the context and adjust as you go along. One of the books I read years ago that was worth the price just for the title of the book was What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Oh, that's good. And it's all about particularly entrepreneurs who build a business from mm-hmm. scratch. And so there's a set of skills to do that. And they know that that worked because they lived it. Right. But what they don't know is it may take a different set of skills once the business is up and running and the organization has expanded and the the environment has changed. So the whole idea is what got you here won't get you there. So I think in some sense, a leader has to reinvent him or herself in the sense of being able to adapt, I guess, to a variety of different things. One of the books I wrote was called Revision. Mm -hmm. The publisher came to me. I think I had been president of Olivet for about 20 years and asked me specifically to talk about this whole idea of uh, leadership in the same place. So that got me thinking a lot about it. I think that's a good thing to recognize that being in a leadership role is a dynamic thing. Every day is a little bit different. It keeps me energized. It keeps me leaning in. There's no room for boredom in leadership. 
let's kind of dial back a little bit, jump in the time machine, if you will, and head back to those first few days and even include kind of what were your thoughts on and your experience in the process of getting elected and then all of a sudden you're president of the Olivet Nazarene University and what was day one, what was week one like? Because this episode is part one of a two-part conversation that we're going to do here and we're going to look into next time how you are planning to end well, you know, coming after three decades of leading the university. But let's first go, how did you start? What were those first few days and moments like? Well, I was not anticipating being elected president. I didn't apply. It wasn't the kind of thing that a person seeks. In fact, I was elected in the middle of the night in the summer of uh, 1991. I was sound asleep when I got the call. (laughs) And I started immediately. I was elected early on a Tuesday morning, about 1.30 in the morning, The next night, Wednesday night, I was in a public meeting in Springfield, Illinois, giving a presentation about the university. So it just started right right off. Yeah. But I do think there is a set of things that help individuals start well. Mm. For me, I had not been employed by the university in recent days. Years ago, I had been a professor here. Mm. So in a way, it was new to me. I think you go in with a sense of openness to ideas. In fact, the day I was elected, I'd not been asleep that night after I got the call. I can't imagine why. (laughs) And late in the day, I got a phone call from a reporter asking me my vision for the university, which, you know, I hadn't even been asleep. I remember saying that uh, the first thing I wanted to do was to listen Mm -hmm. and to listen to stakeholders of the university. And there's a variety of stakeholders, students, parents, faculty, staff, trustees, alumni, crediting groups. So I think it's really important for leaders to learn to listen. That's a very undervalued trait of leadership. Sure, Leaders often have a drive. They have a sense of vision. They generally are able to make decisions, and it's very easy to just move ahead. So I think to begin well is you take your time, and you build relationships, and you listen and kind of let that happen. I felt comfortable, interestingly enough, from the very first day I walked in the president's office. I don't know quite why. I think I didn't have any choice. I just needed to get with it. <laughs> so the first years were really fun. I do remember saying, though, to my wife, Jill, after probably four, maybe five years, saying, I wish I could now start over. Mm. Because in the early years, everything comes at you kind of wrapped the same. Yeah. You don't know, well, is this really important or is this not so important? And you have to learn how to prioritize the, the flow of, of decision making. That's really great, because I'm sure those first few days, first few months, were a bit of drinking from a fire hydrant kind of feel. There's just so much coming at you at such a large-scale organization at that point, right? Right. You get into the rhythm. I'll give you a couple weeks, maybe a few months, and you know you're you're sailing right along. How do you, within those first few years, kind of thing, how do you start to identify who you need on your team and start to build a good team of leadership around you? Yeah, I do think leadership is a team sport mm. in the environment. If you don't have people following, you're not a leader, even right. though you might have the, the position. So I think the first thing was for me to get clarity as to the mission of the institution. Sometimes that's just kind of assumed because you want to build a team where everybody has the same vision as to the outcome. Now, I'm not a micromanager, so I don't feel the need to direct everybody, which is all the more important to get somebody who is on that wavelength. Fortunately, we had a stable leadership team in place during those days, and that was was helpful. But even then, the team begins to take shape in context with the new leader along the way. I do think team building is very, very important. And unfortunately, I think 
by personality, I would be more inclined to make a quick decision mm-hmm. when I change a leadership or a staff position or something. And I've learned over time that it's really worth taking my time yeah. for everybody's sake, including the person that may join the team. He or she needs to have a sense of what the team is like from their standpoint, too. Right. And their role within it, figuring out how they work with the others that are on the team already and coming in as the new person. Exactly. And all of those dynamics are big and tricky. Right. So for you, when you get into leadership, you look back and say you're looking back on the first few early years. What do you think were some of the two or three biggest decisions that really impacted the culture of Olivet as an organization and also your leadership trajectory of the university? Yeah, I mentioned just a moment ago this whole idea of mission. And one of the interesting things that I realized once I became president was that We didn't have a mission statement. We had a motto that really went way back into the 20s. The motto was an education with a Christian purpose. But there was no sense of really how that got fleshed out. What do you mean by that? Mm. And so in the first year or two, I pulled together a group, faculty, staff, and a few alums to kind of brainstorm that. And we developed the current mission statement, which is in print and is in, I think, every office on campus now. (laughs) That's a very important thing is to make sure you get clarity on that And then that will start to both direct your plans and correct your plans. Uh, The truth is you can do a lot of things that don't really make much difference in the long run. You have to be very careful not to just do everything that's possible to do. Only do the most important things. But as I look at the early couple of years, I think there are two things that stand out. Another kind of thing that hit me after I got into the role a little bit was to realize that The university did not have a formal development plan. Mm. Most private schools live and die their ability to raise funds. That's true of all not-for-profits. So we had a very good, healthy church relations program, and that served and raised funds from a core constituency. But we did not have an annual gift. We didn't really have a donor base. We'd never had a million-dollar gift. We didn't have any professional staff that were on the road and all that. So at first, that's very disheartening because building a development program is a long process. Mm -hmm. But you have no choice but to start. Right. And so I think one of the things that will be a legacy at the end of these decades is the development program of the university that's been built over time. And we've been able to raise a lot of money. We have an insatiable appetite for (laughs) capital here. So we always seem to be behind. But... Nonetheless, I think we really couldn't have done what's been accomplished without that. The second thing was I realized that Olivet, like most schools, most of our peer institutions, is very much tuition-driven, and uh, students were very, very important to the whole enterprise. In analyzing that, we'd had strong enrollment, but it had plateaued for several years, and it was fine, but we had emptied dorm rooms, for example, Mm. and I just thought we probably could do more. So I asked the student development team to tell me how many empty beds we had or how many total beds we had on campus, and they gave me a number of uh, 1,325 beds at that time, and we had 1,100 and some residential students. So I put together what I called the 1325 Commission, which was basically just, let's find a way to fill those beds. Sure. We have room, we have capacity. And that initiative really got legs and grew over the next few years. We started a growth cycle that has just went for probably 25 years, where we were just up every year and added lots of housing over the years and uh, built an admissions center. Admissions is a very important part. So I think development and admissions initiatives were two of the things early on that began to propel some momentum for the university. Yeah. 
I'm going to take a moment to just kind of brag on my boss, Dr. Brian Allen, sure, who is right. one of your uh, top VP guys, exactly. you know, one of those bleeds, Olivet, through and through kind of folks. Those things that you identified as so important, admissions and development, are Dr. Allen's area of work. Exactly. So how did you find him? For those of us who are leading organizations and we're trying to build a leadership team, how do you find, how do you identify and look for, and what maybe even do you look for in those team members that you say, this person is going to be invaluable to the health and the future of this organization for a long time to come? Because Dr. Allen's been here 38 years, right. 35 years, something like that. How do you identify those high quality leaders within your team? Yeah, I think we were fortunate that we've been able to develop leadership in-house, although we've had others who come from other universities and other businesses and all of that, and, and all of that works together. But I think I've learned that you first look for passion and for mission fit, and then there's a certain set of skills that you want to figure out, does this person Right. Can this person organize and, and do all those kind of things? So I think with uh, Dr. Allen and that whole team in, in development and institutional advancement and admissions, the fit has been just exactly right. Yeah. And so we've had that long relationship. Uh, there again, though, the, the world is changing and we've had to change along the way. And we're in the process right now of relooking at all of that. So you can't get it figured out and then it's always kind right. of done. But I think you look for the fit and the mission and can often train the other things. There are Fortune 500 companies that will hire Harvard MBAs and then train them mm -hmm. because there's the context in which we work. And uh, so I think that's, that's an important part of it. There's a certain intuitive side to it. Development and really admissions as well, but development particularly is both an art and a science. Yeah. So you have to be able to do both. You have to be able to do the work in the day-to-day the -day managing details, but also relate to people. It's a people business. Yeah, it is for sure. I have been on the road with you and Dr. Allen. And one of the things Dr. Allen always says is you have an incredible personal energy to keep up and keep going with all the demands that are thrown at you, all of the tasks and events and people calling you for podcast <laughs> episodes right. and everything, right? What kind of personal disciplines, if you will, routines, have you come into doing on a regular basis and, and uh, developed so that you have some sustained energy over years of consistent leadership? Yeah, I think that is important. And there's a sense in which one has to take the long view and recognize that leadership is a marathon. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the idea of pacing oneself, and uh, I also think I've just been gifted with uh, physical health stamina. And then I'm so committed to the mission and the work that the energy level is not hard. I'm not, I'm not dragging myself to work, for example. Gotcha. So all those things kind of, kind of play into it. But I do think there is a rhythm that one finds in his or her work, regardless of what it is, that builds into it times of downtime, refreshment, times for family. And the truth is, in a senior leadership role, you have to take control of your own life because there'll be a thousand people that want to control it. And you need to be sensitive to those folks, but I think also have a sense of, all right, what are the most important things? I read a quote, I can't give you the reference, unfortunately, but the fellow said one of the most important things he does every day is to decide what he's going to say no to, mm. which means he's keeping focused on the, on the other kinds of things. Yeah. But yeah, it's a, I don't think of my work as a job. I think it would drive you crazy. It's 24-7. <laughs> There's something, I've had something every night for the last eight days, and yeah. I'll get a get a break tonight. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> so if it was a job, it would drive you crazy. But if you think of it as a way of life, mm -hmm. well, then it's a little slightly different because it's all kind of part of the, of 
thing. So I, I do think, again, focus, some sense of control for your own life. Fortunately, I can sleep well, and so my energy level has stayed up. And I like what I do. I think that's a big part of it. I remember in your Graceful Leadership book, you talked about the consistency of showing up every day yeah. and just doing the little things, right. right? Like respond to the emails on time, return phone calls yeah. and meet with people. And if you don't have personal disciplines to replenish your energy, that can be draining, especially when you see it as a job. But when it's your passion and it's your heart, you can see a lot more energy in it, even in the work itself. Right. Even in the midst of energy for all the work that you do and, and the passion you have for it, I'm sure there's some days at some point over the last 28, soon to be 30 years as the president where you've had other opportunities and maybe somebody came calling or I know you got elected general superintendent of the Church of the Nazarene twice and felt God leading you to stay in your leadership role with Olivet. Walk us through some of those moments and how leaders can stay focused on the calling where they're at, even in the times where they feel like maybe a new challenge would be a little more exciting. Yeah, I think there are two things kind of embedded in that. One, going back to our previous comment a moment ago, there's a lot to be said for just showing up. Mm. I knew very well a long-term president from Olivet. His name was Harold Reed, and Dr. Reed served for 26 years here. And in some ways, he didn't have some of the leadership gifts that we would think of today that a university president might need. But Dr. Reed showed up every day and took care of business and you do that for over 25 years in his case, mm-hmm. good things happen. Yeah. So I think in those days when you get weary or you, you wonder, <laughs> is this the same set of problems today as there was? <laughs> you just show up mm-hmm. and you just think about it. Now, early on, particularly after about, I think 10 years was the kind of the sweet spot. When you have 10 years of experience as a university president and you're relatively young, you get lots of invitations. So any college that seemed to open during those years, I would at least get some contact. Sure. Would you be interested? I was always flattered by that, thought that was nice, but it's very interesting. I really was never tempted. I think, really? number one, I didn't want to have to start over. <laughs> <laughs> and I've just learned part of it intuitive and part of it just observing other people. The grass is not greener mm. somewhere else. Yeah. If you want a nice lawn, take care of the lawn where you are. Mm, that's good. And feed it, weed it, grow it, mow it, and you'll have a beautiful lawn. So I really wasn't tempted. Plus, Olivet, where I serve, is so much part of my DNA that I just knew I couldn't own another position quite in the same way. Now, when I was elected general superintendent, that was a little bit different. Mm. The first time I was elected, I, I didn't really have any trouble saying, I just don't think it's the right time or the right position for me. I was very involved with the general church. I was president of the general board and was heavily involved. And maybe I knew too much (laughs) about that job. It was a big decision because you don't want to take it lightly. And then uh, four years later, I was elected again. And that kind of threw me, frankly, Mm. because I thought, well, why would this happen a second time if this wasn't what I should be doing? So I really struggled with that. In fact, I said yes to it. And then 24 hours, 36 hours later, I just rescinded that decision. So that was a real roller coaster, which was frankly kind of tough. But at the same time, I never had any second thoughts after that. And I think it's different for every person. And some people, in my role, for example, I will have completed 30 years as president of Olivet. But other folks will go to a a situation and they can have five very good productive years and be released to do something else. Mm -hmm. And all of that's good. So there's no one pattern. But for me, I think the long tenure, it fit kind of who I was, my interests and passions. And then I do think in a university setting, it takes time. 
Our cycle is so slow. We make a decision today about undergraduate admissions, for example. We don't just rev up the factory and have a result tomorrow. We have to really wait till next fall to see if that idea even worked and then make the adjustment. And it's another fall. So this long pace, which is very frustrating to some (laughs) folks who come into higher ed Mm -hmm. from other fields because they feel like they can't make a decision quickly enough and all that. Well, it's just the nature of the beast. You live that almost kind of yearly cycle. Everything takes at least 365 days. It takes a while. And donor relations happen. You know, we've had several large gifts, but as I look back, those gifts came after some of them 10 years of building relationship. Mm. If you're just kind of in and out for a few years, it's you're not going to get to that kind of deeper level of leadership. That makes sense. People know when you're not committed, right? Oh, you I know. think so. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, having turned down other opportunities, I think also hopefully sent the right signal to the team here that if he's committed, then I want to be committed. I remember I was a pastor in southern Indiana during those days when you were getting elected. I remember getting the messages and the updates and thinking, oh, yes, you know, Dr. Bowling gets elected general superintendent. Oh, my, for all of that, you know. <laughs> right. And then hearing, no, he's staying, he's staying, and celebrating. We literally were celebrating that you were staying with Olivet. And, and it, I think it really did, even even for those of us who were constituents beyond the university right. geographically, we were affirmed in our commitment to the university by seeing your commitment to the university. One of my colleagues, another university president, the year that I turned it down first, said an interesting thing at the break. He said to me, you elevated our work today, well, that's good. which was an interesting thought. I didn't think about it, but I think that's true. It's to say the most important thing is to be where God wants you to be. And if you're there, then there is not a higher place to serve. So. Yeah. That's so good. It's easy to get caught up in the grass is greener mentality. Yeah, it is, because work is hard. My job is hard. My wife Jill said to me, it's probably been a couple years ago, she said, you make your job look easy. (laughs) And I said, well, I think that's maybe a good thing, but it is not easy. There's just lots of dynamics, lots of issues, and some of the things you can't control. I can't control the demographics, the number of 18-year-olds this year, uh, which happens to be down. But we still have our goals. So you've got to adjust and try to figure that out. <laughs> Which brings you back to what got us here won't take us exactly. there, right? Yeah, right? And readjusting. And if you're at an organization leading long enough, you're going to have to figure out how to readjust the things that worked before. Right. You're not just coming in and creating from nothing, yeah. as you may have in the first few years. Well, now you've got your own systems and processes yeah. that worked once that now have holes and or, or their shortcomings. And we see that in a new culture, and you have to adjust and adapt. So. Yeah, and you can't just rewind the tape. Right. All right, so this year I'm going to do what I did last year. Mm-hmm. Well, you do some of the same things, but you can't do the same things in the same way. Exactly. Because the world has shifted. As you mentioned, the number of graduating high school seniors is down 300,000 across the country right. just from one year ago. Exactly. That's just one one cycle, one yeah. year, and you have to adjust and adapt. And in our world of higher ed, that may seem slow to others, as you mentioned, but for us, it's like one year, boom, and we have to figure out how to deal with it. And if we miss our enrollment goal, for example, in the fall for freshman class, mm-hmm. you live with that for four years. Right. Because that freshman class is going to move through. You can have transfer students come in to kind of fill, but it's uh, it's an interesting dynamic. One thing about leadership in a, probably any organization, certainly one as complex as university, is everything is interrelated. Mm. Sometimes you can spot that, but often you make a change in a student development issue and it shows up in 
an academic problem and then it shows up in an enrollment issue and you have to kind of keep 360 viewpoint. Yeah, and that's where you have to fly high enough to see the whole picture, right? Right, right. And really keep all those parts going together in the same direction. One last thing that I want to hear about is your new book. Right. You have uh, Windows and Mirrors, Exploring the Parables of Jesus. When does that come out? just been released about a month ago, so it's available on Amazon, and it's available through The Foundry, which is the publishing company in Kansas City, and of course it's available through the university. I've written seven books, and it's interesting to me, at least, that they are really different. The first book I wrote was a devotional book called Away With Words, Mm -hmm. and then I wrote Graceful Leadership, which was a book really about leadership principles through the lens of the kingdom. Then my wife and I wrote a book for incoming freshmen called Packing Up and Heading Out, Making the Most of Your College Adventure. And then I did a book on uh, my climb of Mount Kilimanjaro, which was crazy. I'm sure. Uh, In fact, it was called Making the Climb, but the first title was What Was I Thinking? (laughs) And so those books are all different. And then I published uh, 20 Years of Baccalaureate Sermons. Then I did the revision book, which was the look at leadership over the long haul. So this book is different than all of the others in a sense that it's a bit of a devotional book, I think. Uh, It would be a resource book for pastors as well. And it's a study of the parables of Jesus through the lens of windows and mirrors. Mm. Unpack that metaphor a little bit. The idea of a window is that you can see beyond your present location. I mean, look out the window, you can see uh, in the distance. So Jesus would often say to his disciples, the kingdom of God is like and then he would tell a story, right. which is a way of saying, I want you to see what the kingdom of God is like. It's like a father that had two sons, mm. and one asked for his part of the inheritance and went off. So in doing that, you see the kingdom, you see an image of God and all of that. So that's one way of understanding kingdom, the teachings of Jesus through these stories. And we are story-shaped people. Every culture has stories. Right. Uh, In addition to windows, I decided that if you took a window and kind of turned it around, it can become a mirror. And that's maybe the most important part, so that the question is not what you see through the parable, but do you see yourself in the parable? Mm. And where are you in the story of the Good Samaritan? Are you the religious person that passes by? I just don't want to get involved. I don't know whether there are other robbers that are going to come in. I don't know this person. All of the kind of excuses that are there. Who are you in these stories? And so the book kind of looks at each story through the lens of a window and a mirror Mm. with some sense of application. It's interesting, when you look at a story, probably look at any entity from a different angle, you see it slightly differently. Two parables that are grouped together in the book are the parable of the buried treasure Mm -hmm. and the pearl of great price. It's interesting, some of the parables stretch over many, many verses. Others are just a sentence or two. Right. Well, in thinking about the parable of the man who finds a buried treasure and then sells everything he has so he can buy the field because he wants the treasure. I've always seen that from the human viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Buried treasure is the kingdom of God. Mm. It's worth anything. I'd give up everything for this treasure. But in doing the study for the, this book, I tried to look at it from another angle. And if you look at it from a divine angle, it flips the whole parable. Yeah. Because in lots of the other stories, the field is the world. Mm. And it very well could be that the buried treasure is me and is yeah. you. And it is God who gave everything right. to purchase the buried treasure. That's good. It just flips it and you go, oh, I, n- I never thought of it. I never saw it quite like that. Yeah. And of course, often there's no one answer. They're, both viewpoints are, are interesting. So it was a good study for me. It was interesting. And uh, William Barclay years ago said that 
even people who don't know much of the scripture, they know those stories. Mm. And you'll often hear, I mean, think how many hospitals and places are called Good Samaritan. Right. Those stories find their way into the broader culture. And I think can be then, just as they were for Jesus, avenues to talk about the kingdom. That's exciting. That's neat when you flip that from one perspective to yeah. the other, the story takes on a whole new form, right. a whole new right. shape, a whole new focus. Prodigal Son, which is probably the best known of all the stories. Right. Get a great image of God, who's the father and the, the son and all that. And then, as you would know, there's often then the viewpoint of this older brother, mm. which is to fly in the ointment. It's, mm. it's a great story up until the older brother says, I don't want to have anything to do with this. Right. That, of course, had context for the Jews at that point, but has context for others today. The book is entitled Windows and Mirrors, Exploring the Parables of Jesus. And you said it's online at Amazon, right. uh, the Foundry Publishing from Kansas City, and right. then also through the university, through, the university, through all right. of that, right? Well, Dr. Bowling, thank you so much for being with us in this episode. This is part one of our conversation about longevity and leadership. The next one is coming, and you'll want to check that out. Um, remember, you can like us online, share the podcast, comment on it, recommend it to friends. We really appreciate you helping us get the exposure there and getting the word out about leaning in leadership. We are grateful that you are here. Thank you, Dr. Bowling. And remember, when you are in leadership, you're not just in the people business. Your business is people. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Leaning In Leadership Podcast from Olivet Nazarene University and Shine.fm. If you enjoy this episode, please comment on it, rate it, and share it wherever you stream your content. You can follow Leaning In Leadership on social media and watch for upcoming episodes released the first Thursday of every month.